Oh, nice to hear our musicians this morning. M music last night, this morning, what a blessing. This morning we're in Matthew, the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. So let's take our Bibles. This will be a familiar passage for you. But as I thought about it, there are many, many different ways of approaching it. So hopefully we can make it interesting and relevant today. Of course, the hearts of many are, hard, are hurting at this point in time with the, the shootings and the murders that have happened in our nation. And people are saying, when will it end? What is the problem? Um, calling that act evil. USA Today has an article on trying to understand really what's going on, talking to pastors and theologians about what's happening. It's a sin problem, right? And not everybody sees it that way, but hopefully Christians do. So we're going to deal with sin this morning and salvation. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for Jesus. He's the one altogether lovely, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the one I hope that every one of us has fallen in love with. We thank you that he came to this earth, and we sing about it, and we study it, and we still can't plumb the depths of that sacrifice but we thank you from the bottom of our hearts, Lord. We invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. So in Matthew chapter 1, we have, and it's probably good that you also have your finger in Luke 1 as well. I would actually study both of them together, but I will focus mainly on chapter 1 of Matthew today. So in Matthew chapter 1, let's pick it up at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus." Mary to Joseph. I have some good news 
and I have some bad news. The bad news is that I'm pregnant, even though we're not married yet. The good news is that I haven't been with anyone else. We're not sure how old Mary was. Some suggest 13, 14, 15 years of age. Very, very young lady marrying an older man who probably had children from another marriage with different ideas about that. It says in our text that Joseph was a righteous man, which meant he was a godly man. He was a man who took his faith seriously. It also says in our text that he um, was of the line of David. So this man from the line of David has a problem on his hands. The woman that he's engaged to, betrothed to, which they took very, very seriously in first century uh, Middle Eastern world and, and still do in many places, that engagement that was, was like a marriage except physically they hadn't really been together. But it was very, very serious. In the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it was chapter 23, it talks there that if a virgin is found to be with another man, which probably means that she was pregnant, that she and the man should be stoned to death. So it kind of helps a little bit to know something of that background, to kind of know, un sympathize with the predicament that Joseph is in, takes seriously his relationship with God, takes seriously his faith, certainly knows what the Scriptures teach in Deuteronomy, and, and of course, Mary, young Mary's predicament too. My heart really goes out to Mary and has done for, for many, many years. I think she is one of the most misunderstood characters in the whole Bible. But I think it's easy to see with the few words that I've already said but that both of these people are in kind of like a tight corner. The amazing thing is that this is all the hand of the Lord. God moves in mysterious ways. Um, personally, never had a problem myself with the concept of a virgin conceiving. Because many parts of the Bible that are mysteries to me, I don't sweat over them. It's not that I don't think about them, and I'm certainly very interested in what the critics say, because I feel as a pastor I need to have and as a Christian, I need to give a reason for the hope within me, but I've never really been troubled by the mysteries of Scripture and the mysteries of the teachings of Scripture. I don't understand how God became man, do you? I don't understand how that baby could grow and by dying on the cross, redeem the whole human race. I don't understand how 
God can be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and, and work in such harmony and unity. I don't understand deity. I think I understand a little bit about humanity. But all of these mysteries and many, many more are there in Scripture. The whole idea of miracles, does it trouble you? Does it encourage you? For me, it's always encouraged me. When I've tried to give people explanations of my own conversion, I always feel that I fall short of what really is happening because it's a mystery. It's a mystery how you could be moving in one direction, in a very worldly, carnal, fleshy direction, and then in, in seemingly overnight, and we know it's not overnight, but it seems to be overnight, you're suddenly spiritually alive when you've been spiritually dead. Now you're thinking about God and how to please Him and how to help other people. It's not all about you anymore. All of these are mysteries to me, and yet some of them I've experienced in my own life. So it's not that hard for me, having had my own experiences, to believe in the whole concept of miracles. And I don't know how anyone can read the Bible if they have a problem with miracles, because it seems that you have them from Genesis through to Revelation. Okay, so Joseph is going to divorce her quietly, the Scriptures teach, which probably means he's going to fill some form in, some paper. He's certainly not going to have her go out and be stoned to death. And Mary, she has her own experience with God, of course. An angel appears to her and tells her how favored she is and how she's going to give birth to this special child. So that's the background of our passage this morning. Uh, why do I feel sympathy for Mary? Well, not just because of her predicament of what we've just said, but um, within the Christian community, a large part of the Christian community, they want to put Mary on an artificial pedestal. For example, they will talk about immaculate conception, no original sin at all, about this sinless life of Mary, a perpetual virgin. Now, even the passage that I read this morning, if you look carefully at that, it kind of hints that she did have sexual relationships later with Joseph. But of course, in certain circles, that's not allowed. So she's a perpetual virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. Terms like co-redemptrix, have you ever heard of that? Co-redemptrix. Mary is the co-redeemer, for she participated with Christ in the painful act of redemption. Co-mediatrix. Mary is the co-mediator. The Bible teaches Christ is our mediator in heaven, and some Christians want to put Mary alongside of Him, to who, someone we can to entrust all of our cares, 
all of our petitions, the mother of God. Uh, in a sense, I don't have a problem with that term. I guess it depends what we read into it. The queen of heaven and earth. God has exalted Mary in heavenly glory as queen of heaven and earth, and she is to be praised with special devotion. The doctrine of the assumption at the end of her life, Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. Now, Seventh-day Adventists, we have a real problem with that, don't we? That she's assumed body and soul in this perfect state into heaven. And then even using a text like Revelation 12, 1, 2, and 5, a heavenly sign, a woman, parenthesis Mary, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She's pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to His throne. See how we can get mi mixed up even with <laughs> this young lady, Mary. As Protestants, we probably don't give enough credit to Mary because we're reacting against a lot of wrong teaching on her. But she obviously is very important in these passages that we're looking at this morning. It's also interesting when it talks about the Holy Spirit. Now, that comes through in Luke, stronger perhaps than, than in Matthew. This idea that the Holy Spirit came upon this woman in such a way as to produce this baby who is called what? Did you notice how the name was emphasized? And I'm sure Jesus was quite a common name in those days, but names mattered in biblical times. And this name matters too. And we'll deal with that in just a moment. But in Matthew, um, this child is conceived of the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1, 18 and 20. And then in Luke 1, 31 through 33, the angel says, you will be with child and give birth to a son. To Mary, you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How can this be? She asks. And we're still asking the same question if we're honest. Of course, we have a, quite a bit of information, maybe that even wasn't available to her. But the angel answers this way, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One, that's a, another name, another term for Jesus, the Holy One, do you like that name? Seems very fitting, don't you think? The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, which is a term that is used for Jesus in Scripture, like here in Luke 1.35, but also Jesus used the Son of Man. That was actually His favorite phrase, because one of the important things to grasp here is this God-man 
took flesh. There are other passages, like in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. Do you remember those passages? And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. There's a lot of deep, profound teaching in these passages. I don't even begin to understand the greatness, the mystery of this, what we call the incarnation. God submitting something we studied a little bit earlier in our Bible classes this morning, submitting to the will of God the Father to come on behalf of the human race and contract to the measure of a woman's womb. The creator of the universe contracting to a woman's womb. Pastor, you're asking me to believe this stuff? Yeah. This is the biblical message. Pastor, you're asking me to understand this stuff? No. Isn't there a distinction? between believing and understanding. So yes, we're asked to believe these things because this is the essence of the Christian message. The text that I'm especially interested in is verse 21. She will give birth to a son. With all of that's wrapped up in that little phrase from the line of David, um, the incarnation, deity becoming hum with humanity, and so on and so forth. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Just before I deal with that, I want to share this from James Lane. I thought it was very clever, the way it was written. Jesus took off his scarlet robe, and he hung it up in the wardrobe of eternity. He bought a ticket at the depot of time. He rode the train down 42 generations and disembarked at Bethlehem. He cried like a baby, healed people like a doctor, fed people like a supermarket, spoke like an orator, and died like a mighty God. He was, indeed he was, God in the flesh. What will this Jesus do? Why the baby? Why divinity becoming humanity? What was the reason in verse 21? Let me hear you say it. To save his people from what? From sin. I want to talk about sin. Sin is the second greatest force in the universe. What is the greatest? Grace is the greatest. 
Often as Seventh-day Adventists, we correctly say the Bible teaches that sin is breaking of God's Ten Commandments, right? But sin is much greater than that, or at least you need to think of sin as much deeper and greater than that. Paul speaks of sin. He, he personifies it. It's as though it's got a, a mind and a personality of its own, and every one of us is infected by sin, right? So we may not look at our life as a person who overtly breaks commandments. Certainly the Apostle Paul didn't look on, on his pharisaical life in those terms. But when this man, and we can read about it in Romans 7, suddenly when the penny dropped, and he understood the commandments in a spiritual way, thou shalt not covet. The apostle Paul knew for the first time in his life that he was as much as a sinner as any Gentile dog out of there, outside of Judaism. And it really made a profound impact in his life. Because this man realized that sin is not just doing things, but it's the thought process too. Now, we have to be careful when we say that, because not all thoughts, in a sense, are our thoughts. Have you ever been praying or reading your Bible and something just zips right in there, and you think, where did that come from? Maybe some perverse thought, and it doesn't belong to you. You don't want to own it, hopefully. Where did it come? I believe that was one of the fiery darts of the evil one. He tends to do this sort of thing quite, quite often. But sin is not just actions. Sin is the thought process. So when it says, thou shalt not covet, we have a commandment that is dealing with that process, the cherishing of sin cherishing of something that perhaps belongs to somebody else that you have no part of, whether it be their wife, their belongings, their servants, or whatever it might be, you have no part of that. Somebody has said one way of explaining this sin issue is to look at it as a threefold, in a threefold way, that we are under, as human beings, under the penalty of sin. Have you ever heard that before? We're under the penalty of sin. So that's kind of easy to understand that if we have a, a list of Ten Commandments or rules, regulations, whatever we want to look at them, uh, words that God has said we should not do, and we break those, then there is going to be a penalty. So what is the penalty for breaking God's law? The wages of sin is death, eternal death. So, it has a penalty. We've broken the law, and we will be punished. Now, if you had to look around for a concept or an idea that would, would do away with that penalty, what would you come up with? I'll give you a clue. It starts with J, and it's a long word, and it's called justification. 
So breaking the law and being outside of the right relationship with God, we obviously need, it's not like we can atone for ourselves and the, make the wrong record right, so we obviously need somebody to do that for us, hence the baby being born, hence Jesus growing up to be a young man and dying for us on the cross. He, Jesus, takes the penalty for you and for me. That's why he came, to deal with the sin problem. Now, I know justification is more than just the forgiveness of sins. It's a declaration by God that we are right with him. And by the way, in the book of Romans, chapter 4, 5, I believe, that's given to the ungodly or the wicked. So the penalty of sin, most of us understand something about that. What about the power of sin? Is that another way of looking at this sin problem? I would say with myself, very much so, I was spiritually dead. And God, through His goodness, through His grace, made me spiritually alive, spiritually dead, morally corrupt, influence mastered under the tyranny of the power of sin. Now, here's the good news. Not only does God justify us and set us right with Himself and forgive us our sins, who wants to say hallelujah this morning? Go ahead, do it. Hey, we're almost at Christmas. You can do it. Loosen up a little bit, Anderson Church. But not only does God make us right with Himself, forgive us our sins, make us right with Himself, declare us righteous, but He places His Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that brought about the birth of the baby Jesus is the same Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead. We believe God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Third person of the Godhead enters you when you are justified by faith. Now, I know we can't separate these things in time. We just distinguish them so we can grasp some, some of these concepts. Well, all of this is part of the plan of salvation. So the Holy Spirit is placed in you, and hey, you start to live for God. How amazing is that? And what do we call that? We have a fancy term for that too. It's not justification, it is sanctification. It's the Holy Spirit, God Himself, working in you to mold you, to shape you, to release you, not just from the penalty of sin which Christ did on the cross, but from the power of sin in your life. We also should know something about that if, we, if we're in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also, under this threefold relationship to sin, the presence of sin in us, in our hearts and in our minds. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky, and there are different ways of explaining this, even within the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's always helpful to remember the end goal, right? So if I'm running in a race, 
I might run really, really well for the first 25 meters, but this is a 100-meter race. So the important thing is to get where? To the finish line, hopefully as fast as I can if I'm in a race. So what do we call that? The end, not the justification, the beginning, or sanctification, this daily walk with God, but what's the end called? What fancy term do we have? We have the term glorification. Now, I'm not going to confuse you here by taking you into Romans 8 and saying that we're glorified in the present, but we often think of glorification at the end of the process. So Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is the Godhead actually is, is living within us, molding, shaping us, just as the Holy Spirit did that little baby Jesus shaping us into the image of God Himself, so that we not only talk of God, but we act like God, at least to some degree. We have, let this mind be in you. Do you like that passage? It's one of my favorite ones. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, and thought it what? not robbery, and this whole concept of, condes of condensation, submission to the will of the Father. And what did the Father do? The, the Father, through the humility of Christ, highly exalted Him, which, of course, He will do with us. And we call that glorification. So look on sin as much more than just breaking some guidelines and some rules and some commandments. Look, and, look at sin as affecting every area of your life. And the promises here in this passage, it's a wonderful passage really, one that we can take for granted, that He will do what? Verse 21 again. He will save us, save His people from their sins. Do you believe that? It's important to believe it. There's nothing that's going to happen without belief and trust in the promises of God. But I want you to look on the promises of God as much more than just what we normally think of as the forgiveness of sins. Look at it at every stage as a tremendous miracle in your life, a changed life what Paul would call the new life. And just as God took this little baby and started a new race of humanity. You ever thought of that before? Like that thought. A new race of humanity. So he, the baby Jesus was born, unique, never happened before, right? And when you and I are born again, we are born into a new family. One of the very first things I learned without any theological hooks to hang it up on, I learned those things years later, was when I visited a church family. Now, I'm visiting now as a converted person, as somebody born into the invisible general family of God. Christians throughout the world. 
but very much knowing that I belong to God. And I'm asking him for a church family, and in, in his own unique, miraculous way, he led me to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I've never, ever doubted. Yes, I, I've, I've learned of many of the strengths and weaknesses of the Seventh-day Adventist system, but I've never, ever doubted that God brought me to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And only God can tell me when to leave if he's brought you to something. So when you have tough times and hard times and the pastor gets on your case or whatever the problem is, I hope that you're rooted and grounded much more than just by circumstances. Uh, if, if, if all it takes to shake us is, is a little bit of trouble, time of trouble, Satan will send, send plenty of that, believe me, to shake you wherever he can. So you've got to be rooted and grounded in the faith. But I've never doubted that he led me to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I really believe that God has a special, unique purpose for the Seventh-day Adventist church. I do believe that this work of sharing the good news of the gospel will end with tremendous power and glory. That doors will open that at the moment are very tightly closed. And I would just want to be part of that. In many senses, we're told that work that should have been done in an easy period will have to be done in a harder period. But for God to finish this work, there's going to have to be mighty revival. It's going to have to be a tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the work will finish with greater power even than Pentecost. Think of Pentecost. As glorious as it was, it was in a very small geographical spot in the world. But what did Jesus say? This gospel of the kingdom has to go worldwide. So we're talking of revival, not just in a little part of Judea for a century, but globally. And then the end will come. What will it be like to see Jesus face to face and to be in an environment where sin doesn't exist anymore. Can you imagine that? It's hard to imagine. You have to go back to creation and before the fall in Genesis 3, Genesis 1 and 2 to even begin. It gives us another picture in the book of Revelation when it talks of the holy city and how things end up at the end of the age. These are the promises. So his name shall be who? Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. Every one of us here this morning is affected by the disease of sin. And only the Lord Jesus Christ can cure that terminal illness that we all have. Let's pray. Gracious God, there very well could be people here this morning who don't really need a whole lot of convincing that they're sinners. But they do need to hear and understand and experience the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, when we talk about Jesus in the context of his birth into this world, even there we're told the purpose of his birth, which is eventually to save his people from their sins. So, Lord, if there are people here today who have not embraced Jesus Christ, then may they do that 
now and have the joy, the bliss of a relationship with you and the gift of eternal life. Lord, those of us who are walking hand in hand with Jesus Christ, we, we thank you for being part of your church family. It's a tremendous privilege. Hopefully we don't take it lightly. Lord, we want to be fruitful. We want to be like Jesus Christ. Forgive us for our sins. Clothe us in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that in this world of sin, that Jesus will return soon. We know you have your timetable just as you did with his birth. So help us to be patient, but also to hasten his coming. In Christ's name we pray, amen.